If you have a Bible, you can open it to Matthew chapter 2. This is a very familiar passage to you, I'm sure. This is a passage that always has a place in the Christmas season, although in sequence it actually fits after Christmas. If it's on this Sunday, this Sunday is what's known on the church calendar, the liturgical calendar, as Epiphany. It's a a traditional element of the church to celebrate the appearing, the manifestation, the manifesting of the Lord Himself to the world after His birth. And that is what today is, Epiphany. You young Christians, you young little disciples, as you listen along to the reading of this passage here, some men come to visit Jesus and his parents. You know this story already, I'm sure. How many men are there? It's a trick question for you. How many men are there that come to visit Jesus? And just who are they anyway? Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. May we pray. Father, we pray again that you would give us your spirit. Would you fill us with yourself so that we might see the gospel here in your word and rejoice in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, how many were there? How many visitors were there that went to see Jesus and his parents? Well, there were three, of course, right? I mean, there were three. We know that. We have no doubt about that. We know it for sure from the infallible hymnody that comes with the season. We three kings of Orient are, bearing gifts, we travel afar, field and fountain, moor and mountain, 
following yonder star? Right? That tells us the answer, doesn't it? That hymn, that song is a bit misguided. You know, all Christmas hymns have been parodied to some extent. That one may be more than others. We three kings of Orient are bearing gifts of rubber cigars. They were loaded and they exploded, blowing us all to Mars. I didn't write that, parents, although you might be hearing that on the co- in the car on the way home now. That hymn has been parodied like many others have. The hymn itself was actually written 150 years ago in New York. And it would be a pretty good song, a pretty good hymn for us to sing, except they were not kings and there were not three of them. Otherwise, it's pretty decent. They were not kings. They were wise men. They were magi, as the, the NIV, the New International Version, wisely leaves untranslated. They were magi. They were astronomers, astrologers. They were counselors to kings, even. They were wise men, but they were not kings. And Matthew doesn't tell us how many of them there were. We're not given a number of men here. We're given the names of some of the gifts that they brought along. But the reality is there probably was an entourage of people. There probably were a number of these magi. There might have been three, but we have no idea about that. There might have been five or ten of these magi. And along with them probably were a number of servants traveling with them, serving them and attending to their needs, and probably even some soldiers as bodyguards of some sort. There was an entourage, surely, as they traveled along with these expensive gifts, this pricey cargo that they had in their midst. In fact, we also add a bit to the song's confusion by putting them in our nativity scenes. If if you're like we are, you had a nativity scene out somewhere in the house, maybe you still do, and you have those three mysterious magi inside the manger, right beside the manger and the baby Jesus next to the lowing cattle and the sheep and so forth. But if you want to be realistic about it, they should actually be in another room across the house because they didn't arrive at the manger. Matthew tells us that they arrived when the child and his mother were in a house, he tells us. Evidently some months later, They came, and traditions, various ones, have named these supposed three characters, Melchior and Caspar and Balthazar, and some have even said that they came from the three continents of Asia and Africa and Europe, symbolizing the kings of the earth coming to worship the Messiah, the child king. And that would certainly be appropriate in a biblical context. It's a nice notion, but no... In Matthew's account, these non-kings did not come from Asia, Africa, and Europe. They came, rather, from the east, however many of them there were, and they have no names that were given. That's all beside the point. So, now that I've reigned on the nativity scene parade, what is the point anyway? Well, the point's pretty simple. The Lord appeared And the wise respond. 
The Lord appeared and the wise respond to him, no matter their origin or their profession or their royal status or lack thereof, the wise respond to the appearing of the Lord, the epiphany of the Lord. That's the Greek word for the appearance, the manifestation, epiphany. It's traditionally an element of the liturgical calendar, and it follows after Christmas. You know, you have Advent. You may know those are the four Sundays preceding December 25. And then you have Christmas tide, we know it better as the 12 days of Christmas. Again, we sing it, right? And many think that the 12 days of Christmas are the days that lead up to Christmas Day because, you know, we take our decorations down after Christmas Day. Many of us do. But the 12 days of Christmas actually begin on Christmas Day. And they continue on through January the 5th. In fact, if you're doing the math, then your true love would have given you nine ladies dancing today. But I hope that your true love did not do that. That would just clutter all the other decorations that you already have. So there's Christmas tide, and towards the end of Christmas tide, the Sunday, towards the end of those 12 days, is Epiphany, and that would be today. The Messiah has been born, and we celebrate his appearing, his being made manifest to the world, and thus the account of the wise men, the Gentiles, coming from another country to witness the appearing of of this, the Lord. It's a fun passage of Scripture, really, because it's so full of narrative color, and that's why we have songs to sing about it. We sang together moments ago a much better song about this passage of Scripture. It's a very fun one. It's so full of color. You have this strange entourage that appears in Jerusalem from a far country and attracts all kinds of attention just by their appearance. You have a Roman-appointed king who consults with Jewish leaders about an Old Testament prophecy. That doesn't happen very often. And you have this star that leads these strangers on their journey. It's a very colorful passage of Scripture. But it's also a foreboding passage of Scripture because this power-hungry despot's interest in the king of the Jews, King Herod, His interest in the king of the Jews is, of course, a merciless quest to destroy any opposition that might arise against him. And it would show itself in days of deep darkness and grief soon thereafter for those whose sons were killed. And, of course, this is also an instructive passage for us because it shows us how, at the Lord's appearing, the wise respond to him. No matter who they are, no matter where they're from, no matter what their status, the wise respond to the Lord. And one way they do that is that they see past the distractions. When you're reading and studying Scripture, in this case a narrative passage of Scripture, you have to ask a lot of different questions of the Scripture in order to study and understand what's going on there. You have to make some observations of that passage of Scripture. You have to ask it some questions, one of which is this question. Who are the characters in the passage? It's a pretty fundamental question that we often skip rushing on to trying to find some deeper meaning, but it's important to note, who are the characters involved in this passage? Well, we have Herod. We have the wise men from the east. We have, at least implicitly, the people of Jerusalem. 
You have the priests and the scribes, and you have the child and his mother when they arrive at the house. You have all of these very important characters in the passage. But there's another character here which is obscured by its inanimate nature. The star. Right? The star is an important character, as it were, in the passage. The wise men had seen it when it rose. And then we're told that Herod asked the wise men, when did that star appear? And then we're told as well that that star went before the wise men and stopped at the place where the child was. The star is an important character of sorts in the passage. And because of that, the star is a distraction. It should be. If you're paying attention, the star is a distraction because how would you explain its role in the passage to any reasonable reader? The star is a distraction. If I were skeptical of the Bible myself, the star would be a big hang-up for me. What do you mean the star stopped over the place where the child was? Stars don't stop over houses. You can't triangulate off of a star to find your way to a particular house. You might use the north star to find your way back to land if you're at sea, but you can't get to your house by watching a star. Stars don't work that way. That causes me problems if I'm skeptical of Scripture. The star may be a distraction depending on what you bring to the text, right? If you bring to the text a naturalistic worldview and you just assume that miracles don't happen, that everything in nature functions according to its role in nature, and that's all, then the star is a distraction for you. But this is not a natural happening. Don't miss the appearance of God because you can't explain the detail. Most of you don't. Most of you miss the star because you just assume the child is in the house. But some of you get distracted by the star and you wonder, I'm not worried about the child. That star is a problem for me. Don't get distracted by the details. Christians let things distract them from the gospel all the time. Trivialities overshadowing glory. One of my professors in seminary was an avid sports fan. He loved all sports. And his oldest child, a daughter, became old enough to to enjoy and appreciate, he thought, a baseball game. And so he took her to her first St. Louis Cardinals baseball game. This was years ago. And he was so excited to share this father-daughter date with her and go to a St. Louis Cardinals baseball game. So they got on the train, the subway train in St. Louis and traveled to the stadium, to Bush Stadium downtown. Got out with all the crowds. St. Louis is a real baseball town and everyone's wearing their Cardinal red and there's a lot of excitement around the game. And he got out, they got out of the train and went into the stadium and she was gawking at the crowds and all the scene around her and he wanted to wait and just let her take it all in they got a hot dog they went up and found their seats overlooking the vast stadium and the baseball field and the players and the crowds and the cotton candy and the scoreboard and and all that comes with americana of baseball and they sat there for a moment and he watched her waiting what is she thinking as she sees all of the beauty of this 
seen. And then he said, so what do you think? And she paused for a moment as she gazed around and she said, Daddy, all the seats have numbers. And he was crushed. The seats have numbers. Look at the baseball field. Look at the crowd. Feel the atmosphere. And the seats have numbers? He was so crushed. He was so disappointed for all that could have captivated her. A trivial distraction gained her attention. And that was it. Christians get hung up on social policies and fiscal labels on parenting procedures and educational philosophies, on Bible translations and cultural interpretations. Trivialities and tangents and distractions for which novelty you might happily trade away the the very gospel itself. Now, we did the Art of the Incarnation theme during... Advent, right? For Christmas Vespers, if you came on a Wednesday evening or to the Christmas Eve service, you enjoyed, I hope, the Art of the Incarnation theme that we pursued there. And I know that it was received with some mixed feelings. Uh, Rich mentioned it on Christmas Eve. Some of you don't like this. I didn't have anybody complain to me about it, although I'm sure that it was received with some mixed feelings. Some loved it, some disliked it, and some, I'm sure, hated Art of the Incarnation as a theme, uh, particularly the art that we chose, perhaps, even. And that's okay. It was not my idea. (laughs) I'm just saying. (laughs) Although I really did appreciate it and really did enjoy it and very much loved the notion, as Rich described so well, of the church and the arts having once been friends and needing to be friends even now, that that friendship could be reconciled and should be reconciled, and we should get comfortable with that. But Rich showed on Christmas Eve that sculpture of the baby Jesus, a sculpture on massive stone, this big stone cube, rough hewn on the top with the the child, Messiah, on the top of the surface of that rough stone. And it was a fascinating sculpture, of course, in which the artist had left the umbilical cord. And it was like a thumb in the eye. I mean, it was just that part of the incarnation that you just didn't think was there. And yet there it was on this stone sculpture. It was annoying and agitating, and some of us were distracted by it. I was distracted by it, frankly, as I sat there and watched and saw, and I, and I kind of did a double take and tried to blink my eyes and adjust my glasses and think, is that what I think it is on that child's belly? An umbilical cord? Why would you leave that there? Why is it that artistic portrayal of the fleshliness of the incarnation so distracts us? Why is that so? It ought not to be. It's not our intent with the art of the incarnation or any other element of what we do here to present you with distractions, but rather to lead you along with us as we learn to see past what would simply distract us otherwise. It ought not to distract us. These magi are not distracted by the star. Not in the least. In fact, we should expect them to not be because God condescends 
to where we are in order to speak to us clearly. And he gave these magi, these sky watchers, something that they would notice. And along, evidently, with some knowledge of Old Testament prophecies, they saw past what would be a distraction for anyone else. And they saw Jesus. The wise see past the distractions. But they also yield their ambitions in responding to the appearance of the Lord. Herod, the king, was troubled, Matthew tells us. Why was he troubled? Well, this entourage has arrived in town asking a troubling question for a king. Herod was well known as a great warrior and a great politician, a great administrator, and now he's late in his career. He's 70 years old or so, I would guess. His power is beginning to wane. He's appointed to this outpost in the Roman Empire, and he's beginning to feel the threats against his own power, which he so loved. In fact, in his later years, he actually had four members of his own household put to death because of the threat that that he perceived that they posed to his power. And now some magi have shown up in town asking, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? And Herod must be wondering, I'm the king and I haven't had any babies lately, so I don't know who you're talking about. Herod's feeling the threat. He didn't want a rival king because his ambition was simply to sustain and even increase the power and the control that he already had. Now, you have to recognize that Herod was a fool, in the biblical sense, even, of Scripture. Herod evidently believed the prophecy that was given to him by the scribes and the teachers of the law. He believed that prophecy enough to worry about it. They told him, oh, that child's supposed to be born in Judah, Judea, because here's this prophecy from Micah. And, and Herod apparently was concerned enough about it to lay out a decree that all the sons within two years should be put to death. He was worried about this prophecy, and it makes him a fool because it shows that he's willing to stand toe-to-toe with the living God and think that he can win. It's crazy. Upon the appearing of the Lord, the Christ child, the wise, yield their ambition for power and for control. It would be foolish, would it not, to stand toe-to-toe with the living God, thinking that you can hold on to the power and control that you perceive that you have. You know, we do that in many ways, I'm sure, but in this particular season, it's ironic, I think, in our giving of gifts to one another, that effort, that tradition is surely filled with many good motivations along with bad ones. You know, we give gifts to one another, to our family members and friends, because of our love for them, for our our joy for giving to them, and, and even the generosity that we might show to them. All of those things are surely there. But also, I mean, you have to admit, at times, in giving gifts to one another, even to our children, maybe especially to our children, there is mixed in with that an effort to maintain the power and the control 
that we already think that we have over them. Now, Herod was not the only one who was troubled. Who else was troubled? All of Jerusalem was troubled with him, Matthew tells us. Now, we're not told why they were troubled. It may be because of the potential actions of this unstable king that they knew they had. Maybe they were concerned. If Herod's troubled, we ought to be worried because he might begin to kill some people. And that was true. It might also have been that they were troubled because this strange entourage had appeared in town, the likes of which no one was accustomed to seeing, and begun to announce the birth of a new king. Now the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders recognized it quickly as a prophecy from Micah. Evidently they weren't necessarily persuaded of its fulfillment, but they knew that the scriptures prophesied the birth of this king, a shepherd ruler, they describe him as, from Micah's own words. And that's a good thing, to have a shepherd ruler, a shepherd king, one who would shepherd you and care for you. But it implies a conflict with the status quo, which always brings trouble. Even if it's a good thing in the long run, even if you know it's a good thing in the long run, it's conflict with the status quo, which always brings trouble The ambition of the people evidently was to maintain peace. Jerusalem should have anticipated this announcement. They should have known it was coming at some point. And when it did, they should have celebrated, even if quietly out of fear of their Roman king. And yet, they could only ask, will this cause me any trouble? Now that question is often on the minds of those into whose lives the Lord would come. Will this cause me trouble? For any believer, the days of Christmas should bring about this question. The Lord became a man so that I could be made new. Now, what new trouble should that cause me this year? Something in your heart must change yet. And you should be looking for trouble and welcoming it because the newborn king, the Messiah, the Christ child, does conflict with the status quo. He does upset our peace. He does bring trouble. With the appearing of the Lord, the wise yield their petty ambitions, whether for power or for control, whether for peace or for the status quo, all of those petty ambitions become subservient to the coming of the Lord into your life because His kingdom has come and every distraction, every false god will be removed. Now, of course, here you have not just the negative pictures of the unwise, but you have as well the picture of the wise men who respond in in one final way here that we have to take note of. The wise respond by rejoicing in the gospel. Seeing the star had stopped where the child was, Matthew explains to us that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They were thrilled to see that star had stopped. Surely not just because their long journey had ended, but because they knew what they had found. They entered the house, they fell down, and they worshipped this child. And they opened their treasuries, 
And they gave expensive gifts with much joy. In fact, they rejoiced with a great effort. I mean, you have to recognize that in the context of the account here. They apparently had had some knowledge of the coming of this king. It may be that in their search for wisdom as magi, they were prone to search for wisdom wherever they might find it, in the literature, the wisdom writings of other cultures around them, in the stars, in the celestial beings, which they might try to interpret as some sort of wisdom, however misguided they might have been. And in that search for wisdom, they might have read from Jeremiah 23, which explains that the Messiah, the king of the Jews, is to be born a king. Or they might have read from Isaiah 60, which would say to them, The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. The nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Now again, these men were not kings, but perhaps having known this scripture, this wisdom, they recognized when this strange star appeared and they saw the nations shall come to your light. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Kings shall be attracted to the brightness of your rising. And here's this unusual star. This must mean something to us. In fact, the star meant to them good news. It meant gospel, at least insofar as they understood it, which surely was under some shadow. But they understood some element of good news to be attracted by the star. And it led them to travel a great distance at great effort to show their great gratitude for this good news. And it also came to them at great cost. Their rejoicing came not just with a great effort, but with great generosity. Mary and Joseph were a family who probably needed alms. They were were a poor family. They had little to show for their efforts in the world and Many, many, most, in fact, did at that time. And so these gifts might have been for their need, but they're not. These are not gifts for the poor. These are gifts for a king. Now, we might not think very highly of astrology in our day, right? You might not. I hope that you wouldn't. Go and seek an astrologist to tell you and read the stars and tell you what's on the horizon, so to speak, for you. We don't really think too highly of that maybe more highly of astronomers, right? And astronomers would take offense if we combined them with astrology. They would say, no, 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 that's not my field. Astronomy. There's a distinction between the two. You know, we don't think highly of that, but these celestial watchers were truly wise men of their culture, of their age. Again, they sought after wisdom in every place, in every Culture and every element that they could find wisdom, they sought after it, and their understanding that resulted, misguided perhaps at many points, made them to be counselors to kings. And so they became men of means. They had material wealth, and so they brought gifts to this king. What did they bring? They brought gold and frankincense and myrrh, and theologians have made much of these elements, these gifts, and what they symbolize and so forth. You know, I think we can be fairly simple about it and recognize the obvious. Gold was the metal of kings. It still is, isn't it? The most valuable of of precious metals. Frankincense was a a glittering, pleasant-smelling gum from the bark of certain trees, and it was expensive to gather it. 
It was a, a luxury item. And myrrh was the most valuable spice or perfume in the ancient world. A bottle of myrrh would cost the equivalent of about $12,000. Now, few of us would consider spending such funds on a bottle of perfume, but no one in those days surely would except for the wealthiest of the wealthy. And this is what these men brought. They brought what was actually natural and accessible to them as wise men, as men of of their particular status. They brought the best gifts that they could possibly acquire and gave them out of generosity to this king. Their understanding of the gospel, again, had to be sketchy at best. But a king had been born, and they recognized that. And it wasn't just a king. It was one who, even as a child, commanded not just their effort and their generosity, but their worship. And they rejoiced to bring it. It's an odd story, this one. It's it's just kind of a, a strange little quirky piece of Scripture. It's a strange way, really, for God to announce His incarnation, His appearing to the world. This entourage of strange men from a far country following a quirky star, looking for a child king to worship. Distractions abound here and elsewhere. Don't miss the Lord's appearing because you're captivated by a certain piece of the puzzle and you just can't get your eyes off of it. The wise see past the distractions. Ambitions drive the worldly-minded. Don't miss the Lord's appearing because you long for other gods whether power or peace, or any other for that matter, the wise yield their ambitions. And so the wise rejoice in the gospel. The one who made you became a man at a particular moment in history to gain for you the righteousness that you could not gain for yourself. So rejoice. Rejoice. Your Lord has appeared. May His wisdom bear its fruit in you as He sees fit to grant it. Amen. O Lord, we pray that You would grant to us Your wisdom that we might live as the wise, responding to You, responding to Your incarnation as would and should the wise, recognizing the good news that it is and rejoicing in the life that it brings. We pray You would do all of these things for Your own glory that we might live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.